Hello, all you critics of sport, and welcome to episode seven of the End of Sport podcast. As always, if you're enjoying the show, please give us a follow at End of Sport Pod on Twitter and on Instagram. Please rate, share, and um, if you can, write a review of the podcast on iTunes as that's always helpful. And if you have any questions or concerns, you can always email us at the End of Sport Pod podcast at gmail.com. Is that correct, Nathan? I'm not even sure, Derek, to tell you the truth. <laughs> <laughs> Maximilian Alvarez is a dual PhD candidate in comparative literature and history at the University of Michigan. His work has appeared in countless venues, including The Nation, The New Republic, The Chronicle of Higher Education, Boston Review, Descent, The Guardian, Los Angeles Review of Books, and The Baffler, among others. He is also host of an incredible podcast, one that I think frankly transcends the genre by the name of Working People. You absolutely have to check out the Working People podcast. Max, welcome to the show. Hey guys, thanks for having me, and thank you for the uh, yeah amazingly flattering intro. I really appreciate it. <laughs> Entirely deserved. Uh, now we also are joined by Ryan Boyd, an assistant professor of writing at the University of Southern California. His work appears frequently in venues such as the Los Angeles Review of Books and Public Books. He is a must-follow on Twitter at Ryan A. Boyd, where he's a much an outspoken and much-needed critic of the adjunctification of higher education and its toll on the academic precariat. Ryan, welcome to the show. Hey guys, happy to be here. So the first thing I'd like to start with for all of our guests is just to ask you, how's the pandemic treating you? Oh boy, oh, wow. <laughs> that might be a, an episode in <laughs> itself. Um, it's weird, man. I mean, you know, obviously uh, as a, a longtime graduate student, I feel like I've been well prepared to live in isolation and work from home for long stretches <laughs> and, and eat like shit. So in that respect, I guess I'm doing all right. Uh, it's more, more of the same. But, um, you know, yeah, like, like you know, everyone else, um, you know, I, I have peaks and valleys. I have those moments where I feel the the, the weight of the world more uh, intensely than I do in others. And I've been trying to kind of find productive ways to to uh, bear that weight and, and do something with it. And one of those has been uh, getting off social media. Because <laughs> like, you yeah. know, as I'm sure uh, Ryan, you know, knows better than any of us, you know, it's uh, it's good in small doses. And I just found myself getting, you know, I think I think on top of, you know, at working people, I spent the past month kind of putting together these two really big compilation episodes um, featuring testimonies from workers and organizers around the country who are living, working and fighting through the covid crisis. And, you know, I don't think I expected uh, that that would, I guess, psychologically weigh on me as much as it did. You know, I'd just been talking to so many workers and both the things that they sent in that I was listening to and editing and also the conversations that I had with them and others, you know, in the process of building the episode. You know, it was just it was a lot. Right? You know, you just really, really get a sense of the human pain and and that everyone is going through and you wish you could do more to 
to help people and help yourself. But, um, you know, I think to, to kind of wrap up a long answer to your short question, you know, I've been trying to kind of um, take solace and take inspiration from people who, unlike, you know, our, our fellow kind of Twitterites, you know, I, I think that we get locked into a very kind of presentist way of seeing the world and ourselves when we are kind of glued to social media and we forget all the collected knowledge and wisdom and struggle and experience that we have sitting on our bookshelves that is kind of archived on YouTube and stuff like that. And so every time I've been I've had that impulse to open Twitter or Facebook, I've actually been going to YouTube and watching like lectures by, you know, James Baldwin, Cornell West, Astra Taylor, um, Arundhati Roy, people like that. And I found that quite, quite refreshing. So I would highly recommend doing something, doing something like that, channeling your energy towards somewhere that isn't social media. I've, I've actually been thinking about uh, maybe not taking an entire break from social media, but kind of downsizing the amount of time I spend on it because it's so easy to just scroll through the doom laden news all day and just feel worse and worse uh, about the world. Um, And, you know, I, I, I'm like Max, I've been up and down with the pandemic, you know, some days you go outside to walk the dog, you know, the sun's out, the birds are singing. It's, you know, it's nice. And then you realize everyone's wearing masks and it snaps you back to reality. And, um, you know, you feel that, uh, that sense of uncertainty about the future and sometimes worse than uncertainty, I guess. Um, but I, I've been trying to, um, you know, read a lot. Uh, you know, I found myself the first few weeks of lockdown kind of having a really hard time focusing on anything longer than a, you know, an, an article or an essay. And recently I've been reading more poetry, um, and kind of writing some, on my own, something I used to do for pleasure a lot and haven't done as much the past couple of years. I've been busy with other things. Um, and that's, that's kind of been solace in the midst of all this because it feels a little bit more, um, I guess, substantive than, you know, uh, tweeting the latest, uh, latest article from the New York times or wherever. Yeah, uh, I pre- that's that's actually some really sound advice from both of you, uh, and something that I should I should definitely take. Uh, Feel like I'm take, failing here as well. Yeah, oh, yeah I haven't I, taken I, my own advice yet. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, do as we say, not as we do. <laughs> I'm just posting dog pictures on Twitter and and retweeting every negative news article that I can find. I'm just apparently doing it all <laughs> wrong. And I'm comforted to hear that you're seeing masks around, actually, Ryan, because I'm to be honest with you, uh, in my part of North Carolina, uh, you're not seeing that many masks. So um, that's, yeah. that's a little bit disconcerting in its own right. Um, so we're here to uh, talk about sports primarily, but definitely not exclusively today. Uh, but before we really get into that, I actually want to just come back, Max, to working people. And you, you told us a little bit about the recent shows you were doing. But could you fill our listeners in a little bit more on what the project of the show is, uh, what you've accomplished over the three seasons that you've produced, um, why you're doing this show? Sure. Yeah, no, I appreciate the, the question. Um, you know, like you said, uh, we just wrapped up our uh, third season. Um and we have over uh, 100 episodes on the main feed, um, somewhere around between 30 and 40 bonus episodes. Um, 
the the vast majority of them are interviews that I've conducted with uh, workers from from around the country. And, you know, I, 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 I've talked about, I guess, the, the kind of genesis of the show um, kind of in, in past interviews. And so I guess if any, I'm, I'm, cons- I'm trying to be considerate in case anyone has heard me tell that story before uh, to not kind of um, retell it in the same way again. But, you know, really, it, it, it is very much, you know, like a, a passion project. It's a political project. Um, and I think in many ways it's a, it's a poetic project project right because you know i think that the entire premise of the show is uh steeped in a deep love for you know our fellow working people and their families and the lives that they live the lives that they deserve and want to live the struggles that they face the struggles that we collectively face and the ways that we deal with those in our own respective ways and you know the the i guess you know like it's it's inspired by people like studs turkle um it's very much building on the amazing work that that many kind of labor journalists and documentarians have been doing over the years to keep the labor beat alive to keep the stories of working people alive uh, including people like sarah jaffe and michelle chen uh stephen greenhouse and and um america's you know um workforce radio out of ohio you know there there are a lot of great outfits that i think have been doing this kind of work and i very much share in this tradition with them um but the premise yeah like is is simple right it's that you know we all live such alienated and dehumanized lives under this brutal oppressive system that treats us all like commodities and that trains us to treat each other like nothing but commodities, right? We only really know how to relate to one another in terms of what we can get from each transaction, right? And and that's, that's you know, capitals like tentacles wrapping itself around every aspect of our lives. And, you know, I, th- I think I've found both, it started with my own family, which is why the very first episode was with my dad um, after we had lost our house and pretty much lost everything in the recession, you know, after I had spent years working really shitty jobs at warehouses and factories and restaurants and stuff like that before going back to grad school. And, you know, I just saw, um, you know, in, in everyone in our family and in the my coworkers and even in myself, just how much yearning there was for something that I don't even think we we had ever experienced before, right? We we missed something that we had never really had. We wanted to do something that we didn't even know how to articulate. And and being, I guess, a, a more literary person and being a, a more chatty person, you know, I, I had this sense that you know everyone um, could could try to sort of figure out what that was that they were yearning for if they were given the chance to tell their stories. You know, if you gave them a microphone and turned on the recorder and promised them that you were interested in them and that you were you were curious about their life and, you know, how they've become the people they are today and the types of jobs that they do and, and all that stuff. And so that's really the heart of working people is to honor, you know, the the lives and struggles and hopes and dreams of working people by, um, you know, using the platform to, to give them the chance to share, tell their stories and share them with other workers. 
And it's been really incredible. You know, I've talked to teachers, I've talked to academics, but I've talked to um, GM workers, sex workers, um, farm workers, gig workers. I mean, just just so many people. And this season, you know, I interviewed a target worker. I interviewed a, a contract diver. I interviewed a, a stay at home parent. And we talked about the the domestic labor and care work that is just as vital to the functioning of society, but even though it's not compensated in the same way. And so I think the show has really given me a great chance to connect with people in a way that I feel we are kind of encouraged not to do um, under this kind of system. And I believe that, you know, on a very base level, that's something that we owe to one another. That's something that we owe to the humanity that we share and need to cultivate to build a better world. And I also believe, you know, as a political project, it's it's a, an essential part of building the type of robust solidarity that can reach across the vast differences in uh, experience and age and region and language that, you know, characterizes the great diversity of the working class, but that still reminds us of what we have in common and what we have to fight for in common. So I guess that in a nutshell, if you want to listen to interviews with workers about their lives and listen to me talk to other um, brilliant scholars, including Nate himself, um, and a lot of writers and journalists and organizers to talk about working class issues and labor issues, uh, then Working People is the podcast for you. Yeah, and I think both Nathan and I can attest um, to this. And Nathan has already spoken about how great this podcast is. So if if our listeners want to check it out, um, you can check it on Twitter at WorkingPod. And I imagine it's basically anywhere you want to um, or, or your, you download your podcast. Um, I'm sort of before we get to the sport piece, I'm curious in this moment of um, COVID, I'm really interested to get both of your takes. Um, and I guess we'll start with Ryan and then move to Max uh, on the adjunctification of higher education, particularly in the context of this um, pandemic. Uh, as it seems um, from our perspective that precarious workers are yet again um, the most vulnerable in higher education, and they're the first to be slashed as neoliberal universities work to mitigate potential losses due um, to COVID-19. I know you're both sort of experts on the working class and and higher education, um, and Jamie Brownlee um, from Carleton University has also published a book um, called Academic uh, Inc. or Academia Inc. with Fernwood about the corporatization of higher education in the Canadian um, context. And in that book, he argued that there exists numerous tensions that result from the merging of two fundamentally incompatible institutions, the university on the one hand and the corporation on the other, and that casualizing academic labor, remaking students as consumers, implementing neoliberal corporate management models, and commercializing academic research all, uh, and I'm quoting here, radically undermine the very purpose of higher education. So my question to you both um, is, uh, do you think that the pandemic is um, going to further exacerbate these issues? And if so, how do you see the university being, quote unquote, remade by this pandemic? And we'll start with Ryan. Sure. I mean, I, I guess the short answer is that it, it almost certainly will um, remake the university and universities um, 
in all sorts of ways. And I, and I think, you know, we can kind of, I know this oversimplifies things a lot, but I think we can kind of see two paths. Uh, one is that we build some sort of, um, you know, solidarity between contingent faculty and staff who are at risk, uh, kind of throughout the food chain within our institutions um, and graduate students, you know, who have already taken the lead in many, many cases with labor actions at places like UC Santa Cruz um, during the, you know, the winter and the spring, um, the strikes we saw there, the wildcat strikes, you know, so we can, we can see, you know, the development of, of a labor movement um, that can push back against this kind of neoliberal capitalistic, you know, metastasis that's been going on for 40 years now. Um, you know, or we can double down and do the same things we've been doing for the past 40 years, you know, the, with more austerity budgets, with more uh, accumulation of kind of managerial staff and administrators, you know, more adjuncts, more reliance on um, third party uh, groups like Aramark, you know, that, that, that do work at a lot of universities and dining halls and custodial work and things like that. Um, so I think, you know, it's, it's a very rich moment in a lot of ways. It, it, you know, we could see the beginning of some sort of grand resistance to what's been going on for so long and the seeds of which have, you know, been around since the, the Great Recession in 2008 um, that we're seeing, like I said, at places like UC Santa Cruz. Um, but, but then you look at news like what's coming out of Ohio University, where we're seeing not just contingent faculty, but tenure track faculty being laid mm -hmm. off in the name of budget cuts. And, and this is happening, you know, at, at public universities as much as it is at, at well-heeled private universities where there is this ideological drive towards austerity. Uh, even universities with large endowments are freezing salaries and furloughing staff and thinking about cuts here and there. Um, never, it seems, to sports programs or to coaches' salaries. Um, so I guess, you know, that's, you know, I, I know it's, uh, it's, it's kind of hard to see the, the, the long-term picture in the midst of all the, the pandemic chaos. But I really think we, we can go one of two ways. And in my pessimistic moments, I think that we'll just double down on the stuff that, you know, scholars like Henry Giroux and Chris Newfield have written about, you know, the, the neoliberalization of, of especially public universities and colleges. Um, or we can see the movement of, of real, you know, worker solidarity where professors realize that just because we have fancy degrees, we're still workers and we, we have more in common with the custodians who might clean our offices than we do with upper administrators and, um, you know, people from the kind of upper crust of the managerial class. Yeah, I think we're yeah. like, we're, I think, oh, sorry, sorry, Max, to cut you off. I think we're we're seeing very... Um, I think we're seeing sort of two dialectically opposed things happening here. We're seeing, I think, university admin pitting contingent faculty groups and um, graduate student groups against full-time faculty um, to sort mm. of get them uh, sort of pitted against one another to, to make sure only they're, they're only looking after their interests. And then I think we're seeing certain segments of the full-time faculty um, raising um, or, at or attempting to um, create solidarity with contingent faculty. We're seeing like um, Noam Chomsky, no Naomi Klein, a variety mm. of other well-known academics have come out and tried to stimulate some of this. So I, I, I see actually that those two paths 
happening um, uh, quite explicitly right now. Max, what are your thoughts on this? Well, I mean, I guess I would largely uh, echo what what Ryan said, but you know, I guess in in response, um, Derek, to to what you just said, you know, I think, you know, I, I I would largely agree, but you know, I guess I would just also add to that that um, you know, there there are a lot of other people um, who you know have participated in um, pitting different segments of the academic labor force against one another. And tenured mm. faculty are absolutely absolutely have blood on their hands there, and yeah, yeah. you know I I just remember as a graduate student um, going through the process of coming to grad school again. You know I lo- our family lost our house the first year that I was at Michigan, um, and I was a waiter in Chicago the year before. Um, and and at first I was very doe eyed and scared and and. You know, I had that same um, sort of imposter syndrome that, that a lot of people have um, where I saw, you know, the the kind of venerated figures walking the halls with me. And I was very grateful to to kind of breathe the same air as they they did. But then there was uh, there was that invigorating moment, you know, as maybe in my third year where I started to believe that I could be their colleague and that, in fact, I was their colleague. I was teaching a class mm-hmm. on the same books down the hall from them. And I was excited by that, but they never let me forget that I was not their colleague. And, yeah. you know, I think that the reason I mentioned that is not to be petty is not to continue this cycle of pointing fingers, but I think it actually highlights, um, one thing that I wanted to kind of add to our discussion about what has happened to higher ed over the past 40 years and where it is most likely going to go, which is that, you know, I, I've written in other places that, you know, you'll you'll never find a more group of loyal capitalist subjects than in higher education. And, you know, I think that, you know, there, there are um, just so many um, alluring and, and robust incentive structures that are baked into the kind of um, professionalization of academic work that, um, that make it so compelling to think of ourselves as being different from other segments of the workforce and that make us even within the walls of higher education, uh, that make us you know, uh, intent on differentiating ourselves from one another. And, you know, it's it's kind of a, a an interesting case study, right, in the kind of economic or cultural determinism thing, right? Like what what drives history? Is it culture? Yeah. Is it is it economic structures and so on and so forth? I actually think that higher education shows that when the contradictions created, like the social contradictions created by a political economy um, that ends up where we have ended up in higher education with a massive, you know, um, precarious uh, surplus pool of, of low paid um, workers who are treated like shit, uh, a kind of middle class and, you know, then just kind of this top down, you know, bureaucratic caste. Um, when those contradictions are heightened, that's when culture becomes the glue that holds the whole thing together. And, um, you know, I think that to, to maybe take that premise and zoom out, you know, one of the 
most formative texts for me when I was starting to think critically about the university itself and the higher education system was uh, my man Mark Biscay's book, How the University Works, great uh, book, which was yeah. based on yeah, a great book based on a, an essay that he originally wrote about 20 years ago called The Waste Product of Graduate Education, which I would encourage everyone to read. But I think Mark, you know, he, he asked the, the kind of central question, right? Because it's like with higher education, there's so much cultural baggage surrounding how we think about higher ed and how we think of ourselves when we are working within higher ed that it's very hard to see the machine for what it is, right? It, it very mm -hmm. much obscures what is right in front of your face. Um, and, you know, I think Mark 20 years ago kind of asked the, the pointed question, which was like, you know, it, it's like when you're high in the dorm room, right? You, you do the thought experiment, like if an alien who could somehow speak English, like came down and looked at this system and you, you asked it to, to tell you what this system is or what it's for, you know, they would study its functions, they would study its operations, they would study its output, and they would kind of tell you something that I think is drastically different from what we tend to think higher education is is about and what it's for today, because we have so much of that, you know, cultural air conditioning that is accrued over decades and even centuries of, you know, us investing our hopes in what the central idea of higher education can and should be. Like universities are beautiful things that, you know, I'm not ever willing to give up on. But, you know, if you just take that sort of alien view of things and you just kind of clear all the cultural crap away and all, you know, all the all the idealistic notions about the value of higher education, the function that it serves in educating a, a citizenry for the, you know, political health of a nation. Um, if you if you clear all that away and you just ask yourself, what is this institution do? How is it set up? What does it produce? <laughs> you know, what is the situation yeah. of its workforce? That seems, it seems like, you know, very clear that like, you know, judging by the fact that we are, um, that we have disinvested um, public funds in higher education and we have pushed that cost onto students themselves who are now in generations like mine that whose futures have been completely claimed by paying back those unpayable debts, um, which yeah. they in large part will not be able to pay back because they have entered into uh, a labor market that is shit and wages have been stagnant for years while inequality has gone up. Um, and so, you know, half of our paychecks are going to paying back those, you know, student loans while we're all still living like college students. Um, graduate students, we're accepting more graduate students almost than ever before. And we are producing them for, you know, uh, a percentage of tenure track jobs that is smaller uh, than it has ever been in comparison to all the teaching jobs across higher education. Um, I, I, I go through all this again to say, like, you know, we all go into higher education with these ideas about what it is, what we want it to be and who we want to be as parts of it. But when you get kind of run through the, the mill itself, right, when it spits you out and you realize what it actually wanted from you and, and what part what what which of your hopes and dreams it never gave a shit about and was never going to really provide much of an opportunity for you to fulfill 
I think you start to get a, a realization that, um, you know, this this system has been gutted um, and is now kind of like a, a zombie form of, I think, what we what it once was. And, you know, maybe it never was what we thought it was, you know, but it's mm -hmm. it's sure as hell not what we believe higher education to be right it is just this kind of flesh bag uh through which kind of you know private capital can circulate and accumulate <laughs> and like you know I, it, the rest of us like the the knowledge that's produced the teaching that happens there the the education of the population that's that's all more or less the vestigial appendage of you know what it is now wow yeah um there, there's so many things in what you just said uh and i just want to pick up on one strand actually that popped out to me which was use the phrase that you were sort of talking about the cultural air conditioning. And, and that stuck with me because I feel like as someone who um, did my own graduate training, undergraduate training in Canada, and then came to the United States, um, that cultural air conditioning feels chillier to me here in the US than it did in Canada. And, and what I mean by that, and this is possibly kind of a bit, um, a bit unique to my experience and my context in Canada. So I, I was a graduate student at York University. And York University in Toronto is probably one of the more radical sites of graduate um, activism and labor organizing in the country. And so we struck twice uh, in the time that I was there for over two months each time. They struck again a couple of years later after I was already here at Duke. They'd struck previously. Um, so basically, it was an ongoing war between the university uh, and graduate students and adjunct faculty who were part of the same union, uh, QP3903. We had separate contracts technically, but we, uh, we organized, we bargained, we did everything together as a way, obviously, of building power. And as a consequence of that power, when we went on strike, we shut the university down. Um, now, we didn't gain anything for it. Let's be clear about that. Uh, we were typically going on strike to avoid concessionary deals. Uh, but I mean, what I'm trying to say is from the first moment I was a graduate student, what I kind of experienced was the tension, um, the antagonism, the dialectic between um, you know, the capital or the hedge fund that is the university as you were kind of getting into there, Max, um, and then, you know, the workers of the university, especially the graduate workers and the adjunct workers who are chewed up and spat out through this whole process. And so by the time I finished and achieved my PhD, I mean, like I was pretty clear on what that context was. Um, and so I came down to, to Duke and it was, it was kind of a shock to see how different that environment was. Because at Duke, I entered a context in which uh, they had actually, so the, the non-regular rank faculty, uh, which is in this case, distinct from tenure track faculty, of course, or tenured faculty, faculty who are regular rank. Um, and then also another class called POPs or professors of the practice at Duke, who are regular rank, but not tenured faculty. So those were, there were those over there. And then we had non-regular rank faculty, which included adjuncts and people like me, I'm called a lecturing fellow. Um, and I was sort of a postdoc and sort of not. It's very confusing. But the point is, they had just unionized. Non-regular rank faculty at Duke had just unionized. It was a big deal for the SEIU unionizing at a university like Duke as part of the sort of faculty forward movement across the United States. And so my first year at Duke, we were bargaining with the university. And it was astounding to me, not just how little organization we had as a union, how few resources we had, but also how little organization the university had. Uh, at York in Toronto, basically, like there was an entire fleet of administrators who were just employed as union busters, essentially. 
Uh, at Duke, there wasn't. It was just a small kind of cohort of administrators who were tasked with dealing with our very small comparatively union. At York, we had thousands of people in the union. We're about 250 at Duke. Um, but the thing that was most, because I'm coming back to this kind of cultural air conditioning um, point you made, Max, and what I'm thinking about there is this sort of inability of so many of my colleagues, right, who were in the same position that you've just described. You know, they had just been graduate students recently. They were not in tenure track jobs. They still face, because we were not, our, our jobs were not renewable at that time, right? We were on these kind of postdoc-like appointments, three to five years, and then you're out. So you're still confronting that same job market. You're still feeling a lot of those tensions, even if you've temporarily landed a position that was obviously very favorable compared to many. And yet these folks, they couldn't bear, so many of my colleagues couldn't bear the feeling of being in an antagonistic relationship directly with the regular rank faculty, with the administrators, with the university, because they were so used to this paternalistic dynamic cultivated at Ivy League schools, something that was completely foreign to me in my Canadian context, context at York. Like We were workers, we were labor, and we fought. That was what the deal. So to me, to be unionized and to be in a fight with our own administrators, our own directors, other people in our department, that was just how life is, right? Um, and so it felt, it felt comfortable to me, like this is what we need to do to improve our conditions. And we did, and we have renewable jobs now, some of us in that department, because we fought back, we were unionized, we bargained, we used what leverage we had, right? And there are victories to be, to be won. Um, but for so many, like there were literally colleagues who won those victories with me and subsequently left largely to get even non-academic jobs, largely because they just hated what they felt was a toxic environment of explicit labor struggle. And so to me, again, that's that cultural air conditioning, like academics seem to be bred not to feel themselves to be workers in some sense. And that's a problem, I think. It is. I mean, and I guess just, um, you know, one thing I wanted to add there and then I'll shut up because I feel like I've been talking too much. But um, that's the point here. Yeah, right. But um, yeah, I want to want to don't want to take up don't want to suck up all the oxygen. Um but, you know, I guess the, the, the thing that I would say, right, you know, and this, this is something that I think doing working people and, and talking to so many workers and, and really trying to kind of empathize with them and connect with them on a, on a human level has, has kind of taught me to do. Uh, and I'm very grateful for that. Um, you know, I guess I would say is like, you know, I feel like if you if you take a story like that, right, you know, you can you can rationalize it in a couple different ways. Um, I think the lazier way, although I know people who fit this sort of description, but I don't think I think they're actually more in the minority is, you know, you could ascribe it to just, um, you know, people's uh, people in general and academics specifically kind of, you know, inherent um, uh, capitulation to to power and to hierarchy, their acceptance of these kind of unjust uh, power structures like there's there's just something in us that in fact wants to be dominated or is or is at least if not that that is at least fine with other people being dominated if we can at least find some sort of stability i think that's you know that's that has a very um kind of pessimistic tint on on where people's desires um and optimism come from but i think to to kind of take a more um sympathetic view and, and and you know speaking for myself you know i i guess the thing i would say is like you know it's it's hard 
right? It is hard to lose that sort of dream that academia sells us on because it's a good dream, mm -hmm. right? It's a great dream to have. It's yeah. a very comforting dream, right? It speaks to something that I think is innately good in us that wants to kind of invest our energies and our accrued experience and work with students and colleagues to produce new knowledge and to to educate ourselves to educate the public to engage with the public and have them you know inform our research which we are ultimately doing for them right we are ultimately doing for the good of humanity and also you know with the professionalization of you know academia over this over the centuries right it also taps into to our, you know, the that basic need and want that we all have to have some sort of stable career, right? To have health care, right? To have to make a good wage, to be able to take care of our families. I think the thing that should be, this goes to, to Derek's point, right? About, you know, where our anger is in fact directed and why in many ways we are doing the boss's bidding by directing our anger mm -hmm. uh, at our uh, fellow workers. When in fact, we should be infinitely angry that, you know, these fundamentally good um, impulses and yearnings that we have as human beings who want to flourish in the world and be uh, valuable to our fellow human beings, that those have been captured and exploited and bastardized and sold back to us in this kind of gross form that we all have to kind of accept. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's it. I think, I think you're right. And I, and I kind of, I feel like I feel a bit duly chastened there because you're right. Like there's my impulse to kind of, to, to point some of that, um, frustration at colleagues who have like every reason to feel that kind of, um, the desire, this is the kind of desire that you're describing. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's not really, um, the appropriate avenue for that kind of, um, for that kind of tension um well now, i mean there comes a point where you, you know you know you also there there is a, a threshold after which you have to say like okay we're all fucking adults here uh <laughs> you know you need you need to learn from your mistakes right if you are if you're not willing to see the system for what it is and what it's doing to you and to your colleagues and you are not willing to push against that right my my sympathy only goes so far right you know yeah, like if if, yeah. if people are not willing to do anything about that if they are willing to put their needs ahead of our collective needs that's when i think you know we are justified in calling people out and and you know in in being a bit more militant yeah okay that, look that brings me to what i think that many of our listeners will probably think we've been talking about all this time right which is the sport question um and i think that like for us what we're always what we're always trying to say is that the whole problem with the way in which sport is understood and covered is that we don't have these kind of conversations when we're talking about sport, right? And that's a huge problem. So um, that's why I feel good about actually starting um, with this sort of issue around labor more broadly, especially if we're going to come to the question of sport in higher education. But also, I think what you're really getting at reminds me of the question of fandom itself, right? Because we're talking about desire in a similar way. And we're talking about how people kind of imagine good things for themselves, think about pleasure, and how that also connects them in some way, right? Produces connections to other human beings who are also um, involved in circuits of labor and capital. So 
in one sense, I would say like you, the two of you are both probably the least obvious guests we've had on the show so far, because neither of you work specifically mm -hmm. in or on sport. But as I think it's abundantly clear to listeners, like you are, you clearly are folks who list to work, who work on issues related to labor and higher education and beyond. And, and this is the thing we haven't got to yet. And you are both sports fans. So I'd love to hear a little bit now, um, and maybe Ryan, you could start us off. Could you both sure. give us a sense of your investments in sport, your fandoms, maybe even like a little bit about how they form? Because I think there's always kind of a narrative to fandom, right? Like it's becomes <laughs> a part of our lives, our identities. And I think it, 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 there's always a story to be told there and that those stories tell us something about fandom. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess my fandom story sort of has two threads. I mean, one is that I, I grew up playing sports, uh, especially soccer, which I, I played all the way through uh, my senior year of high school and then um, wasn't good enough to play in college. But, you know, that and, you know, also I, I played a lot of basketball. Um, so, you know, I, I was always somebody who took a great deal of, of pleasure in, in playing sports. Um, and then there was also the kind of, um, you know, familial story where I spent a lot of time with my father watching uh, Miami Dolphins games and, uh, you know, watching Michael Jordan when I was growing up. And there's an extent to which um, I've always drawn this, this sort of deep aesthetic pleasure from watching professional sports. Um, you know, there's a there's a, a quote that it, it might be apocryphal, but it's it's attributed to, um, and I'm going to get it wrong, but it's attributed to uh, to Marianne Moore, the American poet, who was a, a great Brooklyn Dodgers fan. And she always said that with sport, as with poetry, there was a great deal of, of joy and ecstasy and pleasure to be had from watching something done really well. And for me, there, that's that's kind of been the draw uh, more than kind of the, the sort of brute physicality of something like, you know, uh, dunking a basketball or hitting a, you know, 130 mile an hour serve or whatever. Um, it's just been the kind of aesthetic profile of, of sport. And, uh, you know, I think there's something kind of beautiful about something that's almost like an art for art's sake. And maybe that's a little bit sentimental, but, um, but it's, it's always been part of my life. And I felt a kind of, in many ways, a kind of guilt when I think about this, the labor status of college athletes, especially when it comes to the big money sports like like basketball and, and, and football. Uh, you know, I, I teach at a school, USC, which has a renowned football program. It's part of American lore and, and American folklore and mythology. And, um, you know, I, I feel this constant tension between knowing that there are so many ways in which the young men and women who play these sports are, you know, used and exploited by the institutions that, that, you know, make use of their labor. And then that fandom, that, that sense of like, gosh, if I could just separate the material conditions of the work from it and just enjoy it aesthetically, that would be perfect. But it's, you know, of course it doesn't work that way. Perhaps, perhaps a confused answer, but you know, I, I feel, I feel a sense of guilt and a sense of joy in my love of sport. And I've never really, I, I'd be lying if I said I've reconciled that. Max? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I've, I very much identify with, um, with what Ryan said. Um, you know, Ryan, did you grow up in SoCal? 
No, I grew up in uh, in Virginia, in the southwestern part of the state, in Appalachia. So it was not not a soccer hotspot. It was kind of an outsider <laughs> sport, um, but it was, it was always what I loved. Football and baseball were the big sports uh, where I grew up. You know, high school football was was the thing on Friday nights. It was a, it was a huge part of the community. I grew up in these small towns, and you know, everyone went to the college or the high school football game. Um, so th- there's, there's also that kind of nostalgia that's, that's built into the whole thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, I definitely have, you know, that, that type of nostalgia as well, but, um, you know, growing up in, in Southern California, just kind of outside of LA, um, you know, the, the, the sports culture was, was just baked into, you know, my, uh, family and, friends you know like and and how we would you know relate to one another right i mean my uh half of the family were like diehard dodgers fans half of them were angels fans um you know most pretty much all of them loved the lakers and i fucking hated the lakers um (laughs) and you know it was funny because when i got to michigan uh, you know, a state that I don't think I'd ever been to before I visited the campus, um, as a, as a prospective graduate student. Um, but I got there and part of it felt like home because we had a shared hatred for Ohio state. And, um, you know, everyone there was like, Oh, did you grow up a Michigan fan? I was like, no, not at all. But, uh, there were a lot of USC fans in our, in our, um, family. And, uh, for some reason, you know, we just always, well, not for some reason, I know the reasons, but we always hated Ohio state (laughs) and like, you know, especially when like the Rose bowl would come to town, it was, I don't know, it was just kind of a, an interesting kind of connection to what would become my future life. But yeah, I mean, that was, that was always, you know, uh, thoroughly stitched into the fabric of our lives growing up with sports. And, and like, as Ryan said, you know, sports was a big way that I connected to my dad. Um, and it was it was probably the biggest thing that my brothers and I had in common growing up. I mean, I think I spent if if half of my life growing up was spent in school, you know, uh, I would say 75 percent of the other half was spent playing basketball. Um you know, and we, we also played baseball and soccer. I never particularly liked either of those, but, you know, we played them. Um, but basketball was a thing that we all loved. Basketball, I, you know, just can't even count all the hours and days that I spent shooting around in the hoop, you know, on top of our garage uh, or going to the junior high and playing and stuff like that. And we all played NJB. Uh, we all played um, in high school, freshman through varsity. Um, I I also played track and football in high school, um, and actually ended up blowing out my shoulder um, playing football. Um, and you know, I guess I, I mentioned that because you know something that um, as, as a non-specialist like uh, like Derek and Nathan on on sports. You know, I, I, I guess one thing that, um, you know, I, I, I tried to kind of bring, um, and I, and I imagine, you know, it's, it's the same for a lot of people who invest, you know, so much of their energies into studying sports is like, I, I can't disentangle my interest in sports, um, and my love and experience of playing them. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that, um, you know, that's perhaps going back to what I was saying about, academia itself 
you know, it kind of mirrors the way I feel about sports, right? The the kind of exploitative, uh, capitalized and marketized uh, gross spectacles of, of sports that we have today, right? I mean, they are, um, they, they appeal to things that I think are good to want. They, they appeal to things that um, are fun to want and that give us a sense of belonging and creativity and joy. Um, but they, they, they turn it into something that can be monetized at the expense of the people that uh, play the sports and even at the expense of the souls of the people who love to watch sports like us. Um, and, you know, I think that um, this, this is something that always uh, annoys me about the ways that a lot of people on the left talk about sports is like they only, I think, really know how to talk about um, the marketized spectacle of sport and the, ex the brute ex exploitative system of professional sport. But they, they have, you know, a lot of leftists are nerds, right? We don't have a real <laughs> sense of what it means to play a game of pickup mm -hmm. and how mm -hmm. e exhilarating it is to, yeah. you know, be on the court with people you don't know and to work out in real time a strategy to, you know, achieve a common goal, uh, to push yourself and your body to, um, you know, heights that you didn't know it could go to or to realize that all the training that you have done in your driveway you know like now you just have that sort of sense of flow between your brain and the rest of your body in a way that honestly if you think about it like we rarely get that in other realms of our lives right you know we we we, we don't kind of get to experience that type of um, on the spot camaraderie, that type of sense of accomplishment and defeat, the types of lessons that we take away from that, the type of uh, embodied, you know, like learning that we conduct on the court or on the field. That's something really valuable. And it's something that I mm -hmm. think speaks to um, what sports Oh, perhaps it always have been and should be, but, you know, in the kind of 20th and 21st century, they've been turned into something that's very much different. Yeah, there's there's a mm -hmm. an essay from um, from art as experience or art and experience where John Dewey talks about how, you know, the, the nature of aesthetic experience is to be entirely in the moment. And there's something about, you know, hitting a jump shot that feels that way, you know, when you play <laughs> sports, there's there's something about that unity of body and mind that, that frankly, mm -hmm. you know, sometimes feels similar to artistic creation, I think, you know, mm -hmm. I, speaking speaking personally, I, I can't speak for everyone. Mm -hmm. But um, but yeah, but like like Max said, it's it's bound up with these material systems of exploitation and you know extraction of value from from the work of people who often aren't treated very well by the institutions that employ them, or in the case of college students, college athletes don't employ them uh, on paper. And I guess to to just uh, add one actual answer to, uh, to your guys' question is. Um, like I said, I grew up hating the Lakers mainly because everyone else in my family liked them, but also because I generally hate the nature of LA-based fandom. Uh, I think it's it's very much what you think it would be, right? It is. It is. I think it's very fair weather. Uh, it's it's you know if you're not winning, then everyone you know complains a whole hell of a lot, and they feel personally victimized to uh, to not be the number one team in the West or across the nation, and that always really annoyed the 
shit out of me because everyone would talk about how many championships the Lakers had won. And even in the years when they sucked, they would, they would be like, well, we've won, you know, 11 championships. It's like, I don't care. You sucked this season. Like, just, just take that L, right? You know, like, and, but, um, you know, that, that, I guess that also in retrospect taught me a lot about identity formation, you know, and how, how I invest, uh, my own sense of, of belonging and attachment to different teams and different players, uh, in conversation with, uh, with other people. But yeah, I mean, I, I grew up, um, a Spurs fan, um, David Robinson was, uh, was my favorite player. I have his rookie card locked uh, at home somewhere. Um, and Tim Duncan was my favorite player in college. Um, and so by that great twist of fate, when Robinson was injured and they tanked the season and Duncan ended up on the Spurs, like that was just it for me. I was like, I don't need another team. Um, and football wise, we, my dad always showed us old videos of the bears. Um, so we would always watch, uh, you know, the Dick, uh, era, we would watch, um, you know, uh, Walter Payton, we would watch the, the fridge. I mean, like it was, so, so I think, um, to this day, I remain sadly a bears fan, um, and, and still a Spurs fan. The Max, Spurs I do have to ask. Oh, go ahead. Uh, I, I do have to ask because it's kind of set up too perfectly because you're talking to two um, hosts that are both born just outside of Toronto. What do you think of the Toronto Raptors? Oh man. Uh, you know, I, I'm honestly, I'm, I'm, I'm happy for you guys. I mean, like I remember being just so heartbroken when we lost Kawhi, but I said, I vowed, I was like, just, I, I, I love Kawhi. I want him to be happy. Right. And I, and I want whatever team he goes to, to treat him, you know, like the, like the amazing star that he is. Um, just please, please don't let him fucking go to the Lakers. <laughs> and so like, and so, you know, he, he, went went real close, though. <laughs> he got real close and I was about to give up on the NBA. Um, but yeah, it was funny. I was, uh, I was actually like DMing with my man, Luke Savage, who's up in Toronto as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. during the the um the series last year um and you know he was he was losing his shit and um every time we thought that you guys were going to clinch it and you didn't um it was it was just really really fun to see you know once once you guys won like how the city just lit up and and luke sent like i think he posted a video from his balcony of like the city just going nuts and i, re I remember that you know the first year i got to chicago was the year that the white Sox won um and, you know, it was just all over the South side. People were running through with brooms and there were sparklers going off. And it was a really exciting thing to to behold. And I and I, you know, think uh, I'm excited for anyone, you know, in any city, uh, fans of any team who get to experience that. I almost got shot at that parade, actually. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I guess it wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> We got. We always got to make it negative, right, Derek? When we're talking about sports, <laughs> um, yeah. But uh, no, there's, there's so many themes here that that you both been covering, and actually. You know, I tend to my, my take is always a sort of disparagement of fandom to a certain extent, in that like I I have a difficulty. Um, disentangling it from the sort of circuits of capital that it operates within and, and not just the fact that, you know, the, the whole enterprise is itself commodified, but also that it's compensatory within larger circuits of capital, right? In terms of the, the types of privation um, people feel in their own lives, sense of alienation, what they try to get from sport to compensate for that. 
But I mean, even in this, the short time we've been running this podcast, um, we've been talking about some of the ways in which if we were to imagine like a sort of non-capitalist version of sport or even fandom, what that might look like. And you both touched on some of those particularly salient themes, like, for instance, the, the aesthetic piece that you talked about, Ryan. Um, so I'm, I'm deeply appreciative of what you said there, because that's actually not how I come to sport and sports fandom. But I do see that as something, um, as sort of a kind of a vanishing point for sports fandom. Like that's the place to go with sports fandom to make it more humane and less dehumanizing for all involved. So I love that take. And I also, when it comes to um, the participation piece that you both got at, like this idea of the three on three game, the, the exhilaration, the, the feeling of actually being involved in sport and getting pleasure through the kind of um, the process of working together, the solidarity of working together, especially in a team context with other people, right? There's a lot to be gained from that. That I think, again, we lose in the process of like fandom towards um, high performance elite sport and that sort of spectacle, et cetera. But there's also a kind of submerged theme, I thought, and what both of you said that I would love to sort of pull out when it comes to this question of identity formation. Because, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like there may be a masculinity piece kind of buried in both those stories. You both talked about kind of maybe how fathers, brothers, et cetera, were mm -hmm. sort of part of the process of developing fandom. And I know in my own life, um, it was certainly first my father who kind of indoctrinated me in the culture of sport. Um, and then my brother, who's younger than me, um, shares the kind of passion for sport um, and whether that's participation or um, fandom, right? And, and I certainly know, especially if I'm thinking about like my high school self, um, probably my early university years, I mean, like there was a very sort of, um, I don't want to, I mean, I was influ influenced, let's say, by hegemonic masculinity in terms of the sense that like domination, for instance, right? Mm -hmm was a part of what sport should mean. And I have to say that even though now in like my personal and professional life, like I uh, abhor most of what masculinity embodies in that sense, if I were to play sport, and I haven't in a few years played like sort of adult recreational sports, but even at that unbelievably low level of adult recreational sports, when I would participate as an adult who very much has all of these sort of ideas on the table, I mean, like, you know, I was trash talking when I played. Um, and it wasn't about like trying to cut down someone's masculinity, but it was about domination and competition and this sort of need, or like when it came to the injury piece, which I am so critical of in the culture of high performance sport, when I played and it was my own body on the line, I was willing to subject it to pretty significant harm in order to achieve like these absolutely worthless outcomes, right? I was playing like recreational sports, but like I would play through pain because on some weird level that did actually mean something to me. And I think it's probably pretty disingenuous for me to separate that from masculinity. Man, I'm dying. I'm dying to hear some of that Canadian trash talk. <laughs> uh, well, I'll have to think about that. So you guys pick up on this, <laughs> and I'll try to think of an example. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like even now that I, you know, thinking about it, I mean, within my my family, you know, my my mother was kind of the, you know, she hadn't gone to college, but she read books. And she was the person who read to me when I was growing up and probably turned me into a into a reader, and into somebody who would go on to, you know, do a PhD in, in, in literature. Um, it was my dad who was, you know, not, I wouldn't call him like a meathead or like a jock or anything, but he played football and basketball in high school. And, you know, you know, it was a big deal for him to teach his son how to throw a good spiral and how to catch a football and how to, you know, kick a soccer ball the right way and how to, you know, dribble with your left hand if you were right-handed. And, um, you know, there, I, even when I played in high school, I was aware of the kind of, you know, in, in my 
sort of malformed, like youthful way of the kind of toxic side of things like trash talk, which very often, you know, would become homophobic, you know, things like that or misogynistic. Um, And that, that kind of always, you know, bothered me because it, it, sometimes it would happen like on teams, like between guys who should be on the same page. And it was kind of a way of like people getting divided. Um, But, you know, it's, yeah, you're right that it's, it's, it's really difficult to separate, you know, especially when you're talking about, you know, sports that are, might be more violent, like something like, like hockey or football from that idea of hegemonic masculinity and hardness and brutality. And, and, you know, it's, um, it's something that I guess is uh, sort of sublimated by the aesthetic beauty of sport, but not entirely at all. And, and then you look at, you know, things like, you know, the, the rates of, you know, you know, associated rates of domestic violence and things like that in professional sport, you know, it's, it's something that, you know, I, I struggle to wrap my head around. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's tough to, to wrestle with because I think, I think everything that, that you guys have said, you know, very much applies to my own experience. Like, yeah, like I, I would shit talk all the time. <laughs> like even I guess the way I, I still do that now uh, is especially like when, you know, I'm, I'm in a number of like fantasy football leagues, uh, including one with like a group of friends from back home in California. And they hate it because like um, I guess to to the to date, I I still have the most championships, but I've sucked the past two years. But even when I suck, I'm just always talking shit. <laughs> and like, and you know, like, and um, yeah, of course, you know, growing up, um, you know, there there was so much, you know, kind of gross, uh, hyper masculine bullshit mixed up with that. Yeah. A lot of homophobia mixed up with that. A lot of like entrenched misogyny that you just internalized and and. You, you know, this this probably isn't the the right place to have this conversation. But I guess, you know, one thing that I have found and this this especially um, rings true in, you know, talking to all the workers that I talk to is I do think that there is a uh, an interesting kind of, you know, politics going on there where, you know, especially among friends, um, Friends who, like, say I know are, you know, uh, they they do not act misogynistically. They're, in fact, quite the opposite. Um, But, you know, we still have that sort of shared language from when we were growing up and that shared trust in um, how much we know each other and we know each other's motivations for saying things that um, I guess that some of that language like can still be there, but I don't take as much offense to it as um, you know, I do. I would if like a stranger said to it. And, and I guess perhaps, you know, that speaks to the point, the other point that I wanted to make, which is that the, these, these entrenched, misogynistic racist and homophobic kind of um you know just just forces that um capture uh you know the ways that we play sports and the ways that we think about sports and the ways that we identify in relationship to sport um i guess the the thing that i'm curious about and i'd be curious to hear your guys thoughts about that you know in relationship to to that language thing is like if you could still if you could scoop those things away I still feel like that drive to um, to shit talk or that drive to push your body to its limits, even if you end up injuring yourself, right? Those sorts of drives that I think perhaps we, 
linked directly to perhaps you know masculinity like there there would still be some of that there and i guess um we just haven't particularly gotten to a point um in our culture and in our professional sports um to really have the the capacity to try to disentangle uh what is more particular to sport uh, and the dynamics of sport and what is perhaps you know like the the result of sport being colonized by the you know entrenched hierarchies uh of um you know white supremacy male supremacy um cis hetero supremacy so on and so forth um <clears throat> but you know the 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 reason that um that i mentioned that is because well well actually let me let me let me just put leave that there um because i i don't want to take up too much too much time there if, if anyone had any kind of thoughts on that yeah, I, th I think like you raise a really interesting point. It, whether or not, I think there, there's a question of whether or not we can ever strip all of that uh, away um, from from sport. But I think if we could succeed in that adventure or or that um, process, I think that's exactly where sport thrives. That's exactly where sport is everything that it, that we think it is. Like the that that people as a whole like they love sport because of that competition all of that stuff like you, you, athletic feats all of these things that's when sport is is sort of quote unquote pure or like when we can actually see that competition it's when it's inevitably and inherently linked with that culture of hegemonic masculinity and homophobia and colonialism and and all of these things that it becomes i think somewhat problematic um and i think i don't know currently if it's possible to strip that away and that's coming from a canadian and you mentioned earlier like canadian shit talk um and we like we like to think that we're all polite like canadians love to think we're all polite but we have that like really dark um sort of side of hockey culture that is always there in our lives and like that is like a very white sport a very uh, male dominated sport we just had liz knox um a, a famous canadian um hockey player on the show and like it is a very very hegemonic masculine sport and and it's homophobic it's racist and we can't deny that that is inherently linked to many people's ideals of what um canadian culture is um, but to kind of go back to what you were saying about the Canadian trash talk, there was like this funny piece um, that came out in last year during the NBA finals. I think it was on Jimmy Kimmel that was like asking Canadians to trash talk. They went out on the streets of Toronto and asked them to trash talk to the or uh, to talk shit to the Golden State Warriors. And people were like, I don't want to do that. They, Canadians don't do that. Why would I shit talk them? They haven't done anything wrong to me or my team. Um, and then some <laughs> other people were like, yeah, like one person was like whispering under their breath, go to hell and like joking. Like it was it was kind of this like comedic piece that really, <laughs> uh, really like powered home that like this this wrong stereotype that Canadians are all like polite. I've grown up playing a variety of sports and I can tell you like Canadians are trash just like anyone else. Like Canadians will say homophobic things. They will say terrible things, racist things and not even think twice about it. And that's in hockey. That's playing like really any sport at all. Well, and I would, you know, just um, just one thing that that came to mind, and this is, you know, what I was going to add before, um, but that that's that is, that is hilarious though. Um, you got to watch you know, the I, video. I, it's it's out there. 
Yeah, I got to check that out. Um, but, you know, I guess the thing that first came to my mind, right, is like someone who I love deeply and admire and respect, um, you know, is in one of my oldest friends, uh, Damien Barrera, who is back home in Southern California, um, who we were on the high school basketball team together. You know, we were inseparable. We've been best friends for a long time. Um, he is now coaching, um, you know, the the girls basketball team at Century High School in Southern California. And I mean, you're never going to find someone who is more, you know, dedicated to, you know, his players, not only on the court, but off the court. I mean, and just, you know, hearing him talk, you know, knowing how goofy we were in high school, knowing how many dumb and even offensive jokes that we participated in in high school and no, and just seeing how much he himself has grown and how he has become kind of like this uh this figure on this team and how invigorated he is and and you know his partner are you know in the work that they do with their students um you know i guess that that's what i meant went to say when mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm. i was thinking about what is still uh what is still valuable there um yeah and what if we could if we could take away the entrenched misogyny and homophobia and racism mm-hmm. like what what about it is still really good for you know uh you know girls at a at a underfunded high school to learn by being on this team even when like they are financially insecure um when this may be the only place where they feel you know somewhat safe um you know there there's a lot of complex shit going on there and there's a lot of not only social shit but like yeah. existential stuff when you're growing up at that age that i think is just you know again i'm just i'm just so inspired you know like by um Damien and his partner Stephanie and the great work that they're doing. Damien was actually nominated last year for, you know, the best coach award, I think, national best coach award. And I actually think you guys would have a great conversation with him if you ever veer into like high school kind of sports. But I guess just listening to him and thinking back about how we together have grown and now how he is approaching kind of coaching and not being a player. Um, you know, I guess it, it gives me some pause and it gives me some hope for thinking that, you know, like there, we don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater. I guess, like I, like I was saying about universities being worth fighting for, you know, what we're talking about here in sports, there is a lot in there worth fighting for and worth, you know, not, mm-hmm. we, we shouldn't be uh, giving it up to the forces of um, homophobia and white supremacy and male supremacy. We should be fighting to take it away from those things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's I think that's right, and I think my students would agree with you. Um, as I try to crush their spirit uh, every class, as I as I disparage sport in general, but um, it's hard to t- to peel back the capitalism piece too, right? You compared it to higher education and how like there's something beautiful there, but also that it's constrained within this larger system of capitalist relations that produces this kind of exploitation, and, and to me, like. You know, the masculinity, the masculinity piece, the misogyny, the homophobia, the racism, you know, that's all there. That's part of our larger uh, cultural context. But there's also these capitalist imperatives that structure how we see sport played at the highest levels um, and then how it trickles down to those lower levels. Now, it's not it's not universalist, right? Like it's possible to step outside of that. And I think you're right. Like there are examples. uh, And I think if we were imagining sport outside of capitalism, um, there are a lot of ways in which it could be a beautiful thing, uh, maybe in an aesthetic sense, but also in a social sense. But it's hard to get to that place. Uh, and, and I was thinking about just going back to just my last point here, going back to Canada and Canadians, right? I, I don't have a good kernel on my own trash talk 
Uh, but <laughs> what I do remember is during that Golden State Warriors series, right? Those Toronto fans booed, or sorry, cheered, I mean, when Kevin Durant went down with a really grievous injury, right? They celebrated because yeah. they were so invested in the success yeah. of the team and the yeah, imperatives right. of winning and all of that. Like, that's who Canadians are, too. And that doesn't tell us, to me, that, that, that moment, unlike maybe some of the Canadian hockey stuff Derek was talking about, which I agree with him 100%, like, Canadian hockey culture is a racist culture, and that tells you something about putatively multicultural Canadian society, yes. But I think that the Kevin Durant thing tells us something about capitalism broadly, right? Not specifically about Canadian society, but the way in which capitalism structures high-performance sport. Yeah, I think this actually like segues perfectly into the into the next thing I want to talk about because we've all mentioned um, what is actually a theme of this whole podcast, and that is this inherent contradiction between our love of sport. Um, I think we're all self-professed fans um, to some degree, and a concern for labor, for social justice, for human, for 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 just people in general. And I really like wake up almost every single day and grapple with this question. I I turn on the TV and I I turn on ESPN or in Canada we have TSN or I turn on some sort of sport highlight shows or when I sit down on Netflix I turn on The Last Dance or really whatever. And I'm constantly like grappling with this question of how do we navigate both our love for sport and also our concern for um, the people that are victimized or are facing exploitation or are their bodies are put through the ringer. How do we navigate these? So, so maybe I'll start with Ryan and ask you, how do, how do you deal with that? Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of, I think about the same thing when I, you know, if you go to a restaurant or a bar and you have a meal or have a drink, you think about how there are so many exploited workers kind of in the structure of that, <clears throat> that, uh, that entity that is providing you with, with pleasure and entertainment and, you know, comfort. Um, you know, and, and this is one thing that I, you know, speaking personally, have kind of found myself thinking about more is how, um, you know, at least with professional sport, you're talking about, especially when it's baseball, basketball, uh, in the U.S., uh, sports where there's a union, right, where there's some kind of labor mm -hmm. representation, um, as opposed to college sport where the the workers are treated as though they're not workers, as though they're, they're not employees. And, um, you know, I, part of the way I navigate it is, is by devoting more of my kind of affective energy uh, for sport towards those professional leagues where it, at least – even though you're operating within a, a brutal capitalist system where billionaire owners make out like bandits and, you know, players arguably don't even make what they're worth, even if they're millionaires, they don't, um, you know, at, at least there's some sort of, of, of labor structure that can push back against the kind of ownership or capitalist class that, that, you know, for all the noise it makes about the beauty of the sport or the, the power of the community engendered by the sport or, or, whatever um cares primarily about about profits and you know that profit motive is is present just as intensely in higher education institutions that have big money sports you know whether that's duke basketball mm -hmm. or usc football or whatever um but but yeah I, I do find myself you know personally watching less college sport and more pro sport primarily or not primarily but in large part because 
you know, the, the workers at least have a fighting chance in professional sport. Whereas, you know, in my darker moments, I feel like, you know, they're just being chewed up and, and spat out by the college system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we all have that connection, right? Like, I think every one of us have some sort of connection to so-called big-time collegiate athletics, whether it be Duke, both USC's, um, and uh, Michigan. Um, I think we all kind of see that in our immediacy. What are your thoughts on this, Max? Yeah, I mean, it's tough. Right. I mean, because, um, you know, like like uh, like Ryan was saying, I think um, a lot of critiques of the political economy of sport can end up, uh, you know, we can end up getting tunnel vision with it and we can start pretending like we don't make a lot of these same kind of compromises um, in other aspects of our daily lives. Right. We're wearing a lot of clothes that are, you know, made by, you know, people who are far more exploited uh, in other parts of the world, but we don't really give a shit about that, right? You know, we are um, eating, you know, um, meat that is produced in just these like god awful um, uh, Upton Sinclair style uh, slaughterhouses that are, uh, you know, mainly. Um, employing undocumented workers who are exploited to all hell, but we don't really seem to bat an eye, you know, when it comes to that. But there, you know, there is something, I guess, to go back to that question of identification, right? There's something, there's some way through through which we identify or we see more of ourselves or we create more of ourselves through our attachment to sport that makes it that much harder for us to kind of disentangle our fandom from our sense of what is just and right. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that also, you know, uh, plays into questions of race and and masculinity, like we were talking about before, right? Like I think about the fact that, you know, the people, whether they be Trump or whether they be a bunch of my dipshit, like conservative um, uncles or cousins who will complain, you know, till the you know end of days about how we're becoming like a, a wimpy, emasculated snowflake culture because mm-hmm. we're trying to keep keep football players from, you know, getting uh, brain disease and shooting themselves and their families. And these people are a bunch of, you know, the people making that complaint are a bunch of slovenly, you know, out of shape pieces of shit, you know, like who they're not talking about themselves, you know, like they're not this embodiment of like masculine might, you know, they, they invest that, you know, their own sense of masculinity in these primarily black and brown bodies that are doing the masculinity work for them. And I think there's, there's, you know, there, and in large ways that are doing the kind of, that are giving them a sense of racial superiority as well. Um, and I think that, that if, that if we don't kind of, you know, address that and we, we, you know, focus, I guess, exclusively on sport, um, then we're missing the larger picture, right? We're missing the larger dynamics by which we, um, identify ourselves with and through these kind of nefarious forces that come at the expense of the well-being of our fellow human beings um but on a practical level yeah man i mean uh like the the hardest one for me is football like i love watching football um 
I mean, I still play fantasy football. It's even though I know in the back of my mind, it's very, very creepy to be like getting so much enjoyment and to be basing so much of like my social interactions with my friends back home on a sort of like, you know, game that something that gamifies, you know, the real injuries and bodies of, you know, mm-hmm. real people on the field. Yeah. Um, and um I, I guess I don't quite have a good answer for that. I mean, I guess, you know, it, it, it goes to um, the larger point that, um, you know, we, we will be missing the larger picture um, and we will not be addressing what needs to be addressed, you know, if we just say got rid of football. Although I do, the lo- the older I get, the more I tend to think that in the end football is just not going to be sustainable. Like I don't, I don't think I'm willing to um, sign my name to this enterprise that, that ruins so many lives and so many bodies for our entertainment. Um, But, you know, I think that again, there, there is a larger political economy that has taken what is good in sports. What is that has taken what is good and fun and joyful about cheering for a team or playing a sport. And that has turned it into something gross and terrible for the purposes of making money. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I guess if we, if we don't work to try to decapitalize that incentive structure and perhaps democratize the, the ways that professional sports are run, um, then, you know, I think we're just going to be back where we are now. Yeah, I think in, in general, you have fans um, uh, on this show for that approach to, to football. I, I think, Nathan, I would probably both agree that long-term um, football is not sustainable. I think I would personally go ahead and say, like, we should absolutely just simply not be playing that game um, under its current um, structure for very long um, at all. Um, but I kind of want to pivot a little bit because you talked a lot about uh, identity and how important sport, I think both you and Ryan talked about how important sport is um, to your kind of daily life and to your identity and, and to how you like view yourself and those around you. So I'm just curious, like very briefly, how are you both experiencing the absence of sport during this pandemic? Like we started, Nathan and I started this podcast to like, um, it's even called the end of sport in reference kind of to the podcast and the fact that like quite literally, this is the only time that I can remember in my life that there is no sport, that there quite literally is the end of sport. So how are you both dealing with that? Well, I, I can say that I have very quickly become a, a I guess, a, a Korean baseball fan now that um, Korean pro <laughs> baseball is back at least in, in empty stadiums. Um, but yeah. you know, they ESPN is airing games now. So, you know, go, go Dinos or Dinos. I'm not sure how to say it in English. Um, but, um, it's, uh, you know, it, it's honestly, it's been less of a loss than I thought it would be. And mm-hmm. I'm a big baseball fan and I love basketball and, you know, that it, it's May, the NBA playoffs would be going on right now. You know, I'd be getting to see, you know, Kawhi and the Clippers, uh, you know, in the playoffs, you know, LA would be electric yeah. with that. Um, but it's, it's honestly, it's been less of a loss than I thought it would be. You know, I've spent more time just, you know, <laughs> you know, worrying about politics and things like that, but also, you know, just doing other stuff. And I haven't missed it as much as I thought I would. I was actually, I was talking to my dad about this on the phone the other day. And, you know, he was saying, you know, he's a big sports guy. He watches a lot of 
everything. Um, but, um, you know, it, it seems like we've very quickly kind of found ways to deal with the loss of, you know, the MLB and the NBA and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, now I, I hesitate to say what that means for the future of sport, but it, you know, it seems like maybe it's, maybe less of a, a linchpin of our existence than we thought, you know, th then again, that could just be me speaking as, you know, a, a college professor, uh, you know, who intellectualizes a lot of this, but, um, but it, yeah, it's, it hasn't hurt as much as I thought it would. Mm -hmm. I think, um, um, I, I would just echo that, you know, it's, um, it hasn't hit me as hard as I thought it would. Um, you know, I think the, but then again, you know, I'm not, I'm not a, big i love going to baseball stadiums and watching um but i'm not a big uh you know watcher of baseball on tv but you know i do miss the nba i missed march madness um but you know like like ryan i think i've found um and been quite pleasantly surprised to find that you know I guess in my own day-to-day -day existence, you know, it's not so much that I need something to watch or feel excited about. You know, one of the things that I think I was worried about more than anything is that sports was like always a topic that my dad and my old, older brothers could talk about. Um, but, you know, I've come to find that, um, you know, we still have plenty of other things to talk about and that's great. <laughs> and like the world, the world did not end. And, you know, perhaps it's not uh, too bad of a thing for us to realize that we can in fact live without these things. And we do have other substances in our lives to, um, kind of partake in and relationships to build and things to talk about, so on and so forth. But I guess, um, you know, I, I recognize that that's not the same for everybody. And I honestly think um, maybe bring things full circle back to, you know, Ryan and I kind of talking about how our love of sports is tied to our own um, playing of sports growing up. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I aged a lot and I, I think I became a very different person a few years ago when I blew out my knee playing basketball. Um, I, I was... It was before my PhD prelims, actually. Uh, the second, so I, I'm doing two degrees and I, I was doing the second round of prelims for history. And then I was going to go study abroad in Mexico. I was all excited about it. I go to the gym just to blow off some steam and uh, I was playing one-on-one -on -one with this guy. And I come around the, the elbow, um, kind of driving wide to, to the hoop. And there was a patch of sweat on the floor and I stepped on it and my leg went out, my knee went in and I tore my ACL, my MCL, my meniscus. And honestly, I've never been the same since that. I, I think that, um, that is, that has changed the way that I, um, that I identify. Right. Um, and it's, it's been very sad because I, I think more than anything, I miss that. Uh, and so I guess while I do look longingly at, um, basketball hoops when, you know, I'm, I'm walking around the city, um, it's hard for me to see that as a product of what we're going through now and more as a, I feel a deeper sense of loss, um, that goes much farther back and that I've been taking, you know, a number of years to try to work through. Um, but it has, yeah, I can definitely say that it has very much changed the way that I approach sports and think about sports and, and try to think about what was so important about sports to me. Yeah, I, I really appreciate you sharing that because, I mean, that is one of the predominant themes in my work, thinking through how athletes identify through their bodies uh, and what the affective cost, right, of the kind of experience you just described is.
for folks. And as you said, you're still processing that. And, and probably this is like, this isn't the process that's going to end soon for you. Um, and it certainly isn't for athletes who make their careers right through their bodies uh, and through the work of their bodies in that sense. And, and the sense that they are fundamentally capable of exceptional physical feats through their bodies. That's so core to the identity of the elite athlete. And so when an injury like that happens, right, it has to be an emotional, psychological process as much as a physical one. And, and I don't think we really pay nearly enough attention to that. In fact, I think that that's part of the problem of the whole way we structure high-performance sport in that even if there isn't an injury, what do we do with the athlete who has played, let's say, up to the age of 30 or 33 or whatever it is, 35, and then they just they don't get that opportunity again, right? Like the career is over and they will never be playing in front of fans, being the center of all that adulation, being able to accomplish those feats, right? Um, and that's devastating, I think, for anyone. And we don't have an ability to really cope with that. So sometimes like the kind of um, residual harm that people feel after their careers, it's not just about necessarily the injury itself um, or the, like, the, if the head injury, if we're thinking about football, but like even things like drug use and things like that come from the fact that there's just, there's no way to cope with that kind of um, kind of inherent harm that comes from the process of being a professional athlete. Uh, but, Okay, so then the next thing I want to get to is um, something that actually, Ryan, you brought the, our first inter the first interaction we really had on Twitter. I, I had written a piece for the Chronicle uh, of Higher Education last summer, approximately, about um, college sports and the sort of role of faculty in that. And, and you responded to me saying sort of, we should also be thinking about the non-athletic labor that is involved in the political economy of sport, mm -hmm. right? Because that's a piece of this process as well. And it's a piece of this process during this pandemic, too, in terms of like who is viewed as most disposable in terms of their labor yeah. under these. Right, who's, es who's essential and who's not. Yeah, exactly. So I, I just love to hear both of your thoughts a little bit on sort of how you view that kind of very invisible, I mean, really invisibilized form of labor that exists and is really critical to the spectacle of high performance sport. Yeah, I mean, I, it, it's it's kind of part of the bigger higher education picture, right? You know, the, the people who clean the urinals and serve the food and mow the grass, you know, who are kind of seen as not as important as faculty or students or alumni donors or administrators. Um, it's the same way with sport where, you know, who who helps clean the Coliseum after a USC football game? Who is it who's working the, the merchandise stands? Who is it who you know, is a, is a student worker who is serving as a, you know, a, a physical therapist for the football team, you know, that kind of thing. Um, I feel like there's a, there's a way in which, you know, you watch television and what do you see? You see the, the, the players on the field and to a lesser extent, the coaches on the sideline, but you don't see the, the labor that is part of that infrastructure that holds everything up. And I think if there's ever going to be any kind of mass labor movement within higher education, you know, whether we're thinking about it through the framework of sports or, or something else, um, we, we can't leave those laborers behind. We can't see the athletes as separate from the guy who's selling T-shirts. We can't see the professor as separate from the person who is, you know, serving, serving food in the dining hall. Um, you know, I, I think there's an extent to which the kind of we focus on more elite or more privileged workers at the expense of these workers who are every bit as essential to the whole enterprise as, uh, you know, as anyone, as the star quarterback. I mean, I think I, I've had a lot of NCAA athletes in my classes, um, especially from, 
football and, and basketball. And I think one of the things that faculty members have to do, first of all, and for, you know, for what it's worth, and it might not be worth that much, but it's to recognize that you, when you teach a student who plays an NCAA sport, whether that's, you know, a, a sport that doesn't generate a lot of money or whether that's a big sport that gets on ESPN every night, um, that you're, you're dealing with people who are working a second job. You know, you're, you're dealing with somebody who is spending 35, 40, 50 hours a week doing something for the school that makes a lot of money for mm -hmm. the school, um, doesn't probably make much money for them um, in any way. But, um, you know, I think just being aware of, 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 of the kind of pressures that, that athletes are under. And, and also, I think, you know, faculty members, it's incumbent upon us to realize that to, to not stereotype athletes and to realize that they're whole, complete, complex, interesting people. You know, some of my brightest students have been athletes, you know, and, and I think we have to kind of get beyond the whole idea of like the, the sort of brainless jock stereotype, because I think that's very hurtful and very limiting in a lot of ways. And, um, and you know, beyond that, you know, when it comes to labor organizing, I think that, um, you know, one thing that, that's always intrigued me is the possibility of building bridges between, say, contingent faculty and people on coaching staffs who are university staff who might not make as much money as the head coach, who might see themselves as contingent laborers in some way. Um, you know, I've, I've met a few assistant coaches here and there over the years, and they are not making million dollar salaries. Um, so I think it, it's incumbent upon us to see ourselves as part of a bigger picture where you have all of these pools of labor that are doing things for the institution and not really getting recompense for that. Thank you for listening to another episode of the End of Sport podcast. If you enjoy the show, please feel free to reach out to us on Twitter or Instagram at End of Sport Pod. Like, share, subscribe, and please feel free to give us a review on iTunes. That always helps out the pod. 